0: Welcome to The Fader Interview. I'm Alex Robert Ross, editorial director of The Fader. By the mid-1990s, Danny Elfman was already one of the world's most recognizable musicians. He'd become the director Tim Burton's go-to composer, penning the iconic scores for Batman, Edward Scissorhands, and The Nightmare Before Christmas. He'd had his own scores chopped up into a critically acclaimed best-of album called Music for a Darkened Theatre. And, of course, he'd seen his theme for The Simpsons turn into one of the most familiar pieces of music in American history. But when he left his successful new wave band Oingo Boingo in 1995 to focus fully on his compositions, it was a move which proved sensible. In the next three years alone, he'd scored Mission Impossible, Men in Black, Flubber, and Good Will Hunting. Elfman was leaving some business unfinished in pop songwriting. If anything, over the next two and a half decades, he moved even further away from rock and roll, instead composing standalone pieces of contemporary classical music. But in late 2019, when Kinchela's organisers asked Elfman to perform at their festival the following year, he went back to the well. He prepared an inventive medley of movie music and Oingo Boingo reprisals, as well as a dark instrumental track titled Sorry. When the world shut down and Elfman quarantined with his wife and son outside Los Angeles, more songs poured out. Thus was born Big Mess, a double album of ambitious chamber goth far removed from any of his past projects, and a collection of songs that would eventually seep its way into Elfman's Coachella set when that finally went ahead this past April. Then in another uncharacteristic turn, he let go of his new tunes, to be remixed and covered by a shockingly motley crew of musicians. Bigger, Messier, out today, places features from Trent Reznor and Iggy Pop, next to remixes by Machine Girl, Square Pusher, and Caitlin Aurelia Smith. It's a chaotic ride that's impossible to explain on paper, but a pleasure to listen to nonetheless. On the eve of the album's release, The Fader's Raphael Helfand spoke to Elfman about his new project and some other things that make him happy, including horror movies, his tattoos, and his daughter Molly's forthcoming first feature film.
1: So, Big Mess, how would you say the reception of that record differed from your expectations, or was it pretty much right along the lines of what you expected?
2: I didn't really have any expectations, so, I mean, it was great, you know? I knew I was coming up with kind of a weird thing that didn't really fit easily into any niche and uh was gonna be kind of a marketing nightmare so i went in with very low expectations Uh, i was happy to find any audience at all so to say that it was better than i expected is kind of easy because um i kind of semi-expected no one at all to notice you know that i put out a record
1: what was it like you know going into that album you, you mentioned you sort of realized you could do things with your voice that you couldn't when you were younger. What was it like to sort of shake off the dust just in terms of like making rock music in general, being primarily guitar based and and singing again?
2: You know, it was, uh, it was tough. It was kind of weird because at first I wasn't sure how do I approach it? You know what I mean? I, was, I didn't know what to expect because the only singing I'd done since 95 has been the last whatever, eight years uh, doing uh, Nightmare Before Christmas uh, concerts live, eight, nine years. So Jack Skellington was the only voice that I had used in the last decade. So it was just kind of like experimenting. And it started with Sorry. And, uh, you know, Sorry was just almost like an angry rant. And it just felt really good to be like using my voice again and not in a theatrical uh, Jack Skellington manner. and then as I started doing more songs, it was just kind of experimenting and fucking around. You know, I wasn't really trying for anything. I just it would have an idea for a song, and then I would just kind of uh, start working my parts and see. Oh, that's interesting. I could do this. I already knew that I wasn't going to write anything really high for myself because, you know, the the problem is with the really high range, even back in the old. Boingo Boingo days, I wrote for the very top of my range. <laughs> and uh, even then, it was hard to do, uh, you know, more than one, two nights in a row. It's like touring was hard because it's like I'd go, damn, why do I write everything for like my absolute top notes, which disappear really quickly when I'm on the road? And so um, coming back a quarter century later, it's like, all right, I'm not even going to try for that shit. And uh, and I think it, when, it was when I was doing True. I started really getting into the groove because uh i was like thinking i actually couldn't have done this song 30 years ago and so i was finding kind of an edge in my voice that i'd kind of used to try to force but now the best way i could describe it is like a a trumpet player picks up a trumpet that used to be in a big band and it's like all right i'm not going to try to hit that high c i used to hit but then they start playing and they find they can hit some gravelly tones and and kind of weird overtones and things that they couldn't do before and go oh this is cool and it was kind of like that oh, just-
1: On a similar note, uh, what was it like returning to just like the songwriting medium after so many years thinking like on a, such a symphonic and like grander scale?
2: It was necessary is what it was because it wasn't intentional. You know, I hadn't thought about doing a record. Really, I only thought about doing some songs because uh, I accepted this Coachella show. And I said, all right, you know, I'll do some film stuff and I'll revamp some Oingo Boingo stuff. And I've got... At that point, I had two new songs, which I was going to premiere, but I never thought about doing more. It was just really for the concert, doing Sorry and Happy. And then once I opened that Pandora's box, I couldn't close it. You know, I went into isolation. And before I knew it, you know, not only did I finish Happy and Sorry, but then 16 more <laughs> just kind of came out. And um, it was all unplanned for, really. But I think it had to happen. You know, as soon as I was putting my voice to sorry, I realized I had so much venom in me that, you know, if I didn't let this shit out, that it was not going to be good for me.
1: As someone who grew up with your movies, obviously, um, it was a bit of a shock uh, to hear you playing like sort of these strange industrial rock songs. But uh, now that I've given it a bunch of listens, I can sort of see how like the maximalist impulses that created these songs are also like present in some of your best scores. Do you consider yourself a maximalist?
2: Yeah. I mean, clearly I'm not a minimalist. <laughs> that's a, that's an easy, uh, <laughs> generalization to make, uh, neither when I'm with orchestra, uh, for film. Well, occasionally for film, I kind of do a minimal style or something, you know, I, I really tone it down, but obviously I love laying it on, you know, hot and heavy. And, um, when it came to the songs, I think because I'd already been in rehearsal for Coachella, I had guitar in my hands and in my head. But for that, I might have been writing more synthesizer-based music. I don't know what direction I would have gone in, but I had electric guitar in my head. And I had for a while been toying with this concept of combining rock band and orchestra. And that's what actually started the song Sorry. It was originally constructed as an instrumental piece. I wasn't singing on it like a concept piece that I was going to do for this uh, festival over in Tasmania. So it was for chamber orchestra, rock band, and female voices. And so I kind of had this thing in my head. And after I wrote Sorry, I just kind of kept that template going of like band and orchestra. Because um, I'd been imagining for a while orchestra in a way that I'm not used to hearing in rock songs. You know, usually orchestras for embellishment and, you know, it's pretty and, you could do all kinds of wonderful things with it, but I'm not used to hearing it as a almost like a rhythm instrument, part of the engine of the song coming from the orchestra. So it's something I kind of wanted to experiment with, and then that became big mess.
1: You've called yourself an obsessive going on with the... With a the maximalism theme, that's easier disguised like in an immersive film score where it's working in service of a visual narrative. It's much clearer on Big Mess where it feels like you're sort of pushing each musical theme and lyrical idea to like its logical conclusion. I'm wondering how that works in your creative process. Like if I tried to take every thought I had to completion, I think I would lose my mind and I would do some very bad writing in the process. But you, you seem to make it work.
2: The discipline with the songs for me was not overworking them. Because, you know, I do have that obsessive part of myself, you know, when I'm writing symphonic works, I could get like really into this shit and like trying to really find all the harmony and the counterpoint and everything. With the songs, I, I really wanted to try to keep it more spontaneous. So the discipline was like just laying it down quickly, getting the idea across, and then not going back and reworking it and reworking it. Um, because I could do that. I mean, I wrote and recorded everything, my demos, between April and August. And, uh, you know, I could have gone another year on them if I let myself get into that mode. But to me, then it would lose some of the freshness. And so I just didn't go that way.
1: Turning it over to Bigger Messier, was it sometimes difficult for you to hear what other musicians did with your work? You know, like after all these years being effectively like the sole auteur of your music, why was this the time you decided to let other artists put their hands all over it?
2: It started with Stu Brooks, my bass player, um, saying, you know, would I be open to it? And I was like, oh yeah, but you know, my natural tendency is to go, but you know, who's going to want to do my shit? No one's going to want to touch my stuff. You know, I'd be I'd love to hear what people would do with it just because it'd be such an interesting experience. And the next thing I know, I'm on the phone with a square pusher (laughs) and I'm like, you know who I am? It's like, what the fuck? And, uh, great talks and, you know, interesting people. And so he was the first. And, um, I really, I tried to give the same input to everybody, which is no input, which is like, really just do your fucking thing, man. It's like, you know, whatever you want to do, don't try to please me. Because the pleasure in this whole experience, I realized, was letting go and finding creative people, you know, whether it be uh, Square Pusher or Ghost Main or, you know, Zach Hill or um, Health or, you know, Juju or any of them. It was like, okay, look, you do already really creative, interesting stuff. So I'm not going to tell you what to do. Just Do your thing. And the pleasure is like having no idea what to expect, you know, with these like real extremes, you know, with, uh, the kind of laid back stuff that, you know, health did and, uh, the really aggressive stuff that, uh, Zach Hill and machine girl did, um, I I just really enjoyed it. And then the second phase was like, well, I mean, would it be possible, you know, you'd be open to like anybody else vocally approaching some of the songs. And I go, well, yeah, I mean, if there are people I dig and it's like, well, who do you dig? And I go, well, top of the list is David Bowie. It's like, all right, that's not going to happen. John Lennon, I don't think so. Um, You know, on and on of all the dead Singers that I really love, and I said Trent Reznor, he's not going to want to do it. And um, I'd mentioned uh, Bixxabargeld because I, you know, I'm a fan of Noi Boten, and uh, somewhere in it, Iggy Pop's name came up, and it's like he's not, he's not going to want anything to do. And and then obviously I was wrong. <laughs> I was like really astounded when uh, you know Trent was sending tracks back and uh, all this really amazing stuff, and iggy said yes and uh and blixa said sure i'd love to and uh it's kind of like icing on the cake on top of the icing on the cake <laughs> i wasn't expecting anything and i'm hearing these really interesting interpretations of my my music which i don't know it was just it was very cool you know like here i'd only cut true some months earlier with my own voice and now i'm recutting my voice around trent Reznor singing my song, so it'll blend better with his voice, and then I realized I got to the point where now when I hear True in my head, I don't hear myself singing anymore, I hear Trent. It's such a mind fuck, but it's such a kind of a cool mind fuck. And Iggy's crazy approach. I mean, uh, he wrote me this letter saying, Look, I don't know if you'd like my approach. I see myself as a voice actor and I love this song, and the lyrics are kind of like my life. And, uh, you know, but I would approach it as a conversation. And so, but if this doesn't appeal to you, I'm fine with it. And I goes like, dude, <laughs> it's like, please jump in, do it. I would love to hear. What you would do. I mean, you know, really, there's nothing that Iggy Pop could have done with one of my songs that I would have been unhappy with that I can't imagine. I was just so flattered and honored, you know, to be working with this kind of legend, you know. Kick me, I'm a celebrity. Kick me, I'm a celebrity. Hey, kick me, I'm a celebrity. Kick me. I'm a celebrity. Losers not invited.
1: Losers not invited. Look now!
2: Everybody can see. Look now! Everybody can see. It, it just really added, like, the whole year after the album coming out became this interesting experience of invention letting go giving up control and i'm such a control freak for the last 40 years you know with my orchestral music i'm ridiculous i mean my engineers have just gotten used to like i'm probably one of the only composers they work with that needs to get hands on the faders when we're mixing you know it's like i know we're talking about fader but faders are my life you know it's like my fingers on faders is I can't even remember before a time before my fingers were on faders. And so I'm a control freak, and the pleasure here is like giving up control. And uh, I loved it.
1: You picked a really wild uh, group of artists to uh, remix and cover your songs for this album. Uh, were there like any criteria you looked into for the folks that you reached out to?
2: Just respect, that was it. You know, on the remixers, uh, you know, Stu would w- started working with my creative director on the project, an Austrian artist named Barrett Gilma. And uh, she's also really into electronic music, and she curates for a festival in Austria called Elevate each year. And so, her and Stu started brainstorming together, and they would just send me lots of stuff because obviously I needed some education. And I would just get really excited. I would go, "Oh yeah! I mean, it's like uh, sure. This this artist sounds you know really cool. Let's go for it. Let's do it. And it's like sure. The Locust, yeah. Like like let's try it. Boris. I love yeah." And, um, you know, Ghost Main, it's like now I'm like addicted to Ghost Main radio on Spotify. it was great. It was kind of like turning me on to a lot of new stuff that I immediately hooked into, especially because, you know, there's some good high energy artists out there and that always is going to grab me. You wouldn't know it from Oingo Boingo, but, you know, I was a fan of uh, Nine Inch Nails and Tool and Neubaten. So what I listened to wasn't necessarily what I was doing. You know, my band was my band and it was great. I, I loved it, but they weren't, that wasn't what we were, that wasn't what they were. So getting into some like really intense stuff with some of these artists, you know, I loved that, you know, so I fell right into, you know, machine girls, act ghost, and you know, like, like this high energy, but then, I, you know, I really liked the kind of, uh, ambient and weirder stuff too. Uh, so, you know, I, I think what square pusher did was amazing. And I love what little snake did, you know, a lot of really inventive stuff. So it was it was
1: great. Trent, I guess he seems like, like maybe the biggest guest president on the album, not only because, you know, he's got those two songs and they're both remixed later, um, but uh, also just because like it's clear what an impact he's had on on your music, I guess, and at least and your, your rock music, which you wouldn't have known, you know, over the years uh, with your orchestral stuff. Did you have a personal relationship with him before this all happened?
2: I mean, we met once at this kind of composer roundtable. And talked for like a minute, had a couple of emails, and that was it. (laughs) So, no. It's interesting thinking about like your respective trajectories
1: from rock music to film and back. Were you sort of like tracking that, uh, tracking his career?
2: Oh, definitely. It's interesting because over the years, I'd worked with uh, films where the producers had come and said, you know, can we get that nine-inch nail sound? (laughs) Can we get that? And i go, no, no. I'm not, we're not going there you know if you want 9 inch nail sound you get 9 inch nails and uh but it's a sound that i know there was a real thirst for in films you know and uh that's why i was curious when i heard oh trent is doing like a movie if if that's what he was going to do but my respect for him just went way higher It was already like as high as it can get but when i saw that he wasn't doing that that he really was carving out a place different from that which is what he was really well known for most well known for and from my own perspective I know how hard that is you know when I started with my early films with Tim Burton there was part of me that was like well make it more like an oingo boingo like kind of song you know use electronic use guitar use drums and make it more pop based and uh, I wanted to do the opposite I really wanted to go in for full-blown orchestral scoring that that to me was a much much harder challenge and to me Trent, in his own way, did the same thing. He went and carved out a sound for himself that has really made an identifiable imprint in film scoring. So uh, I have been tracking him and feel real proud of his accomplishments.
1: So yeah, I mean, obviously, Trent is very much synonymous with industrial music or Nine Inch Nails is. You have a lot of other artists in the album who are like sort of associated with like this newer, like post-industrial movement, if you want to call it that. Like obviously, Zach Hill and Machine Girl and Boy Harsher. Have you been following their work closely? Um, or are those people that were sort of introduced to you more recently through, through the record?
2: Well, th- those are people that, uh, you know, I-, I tend to like surface about every 10 years, like a submarine. And I go down, and I get in my own fucking bubble. And then I come up about once a decade, and then I'll like soak up a whole bunch of new music, and I'll get a bunch of new favorite artists that I'll listen to, and then I'll go back down again. So I definitely was due for a total re-education. So I wasn't real familiar with uh, a number of the remixers. You know, Square Pusher goes back pretty far and I knew who Square Pusher was. You know, I'd heard of Death Grips, but I didn't really know who they were. And uh, so, you know, there was some educating. But again, that was part of the process with uh, Stu and Barrett. You know, like, here's a bunch of stuff. What are you responding to? And quickly, they, you know, okay, I'm responding to this a lot. You know so now i've got all these new favorite artists which is great because now now i follow them and uh, you know check out their stuff and that's kind of been the story of my life really like i said you know surfacing however 20 years ago and Suddenly, it's like, oh, who is this cat power? All of a sudden, I'm just listening obsessively to cat power or, or whomever. And um, and then I'll re- come up again later. And I don't follow because, you know, I, I tend to live like a re- musical recluse in a bubble. And when I'm writing, I tend not to listen to anything. Of course, I'm almost always writing, <laughs> you know. So I pull out my playlists when I'm working out, when I'm exercising. And, you know, I've had this playlist for years which is just filled with, uh, tool, noy and nine inch nails. <laughs> you know, when I'm, when I'm exercising, it's like, that's what gets me through it. And then it began even more so when I was tattooing, I go, all right, um, fear inoculum literally got me through all of this <laughs> work, which was fucking excruciating. And, um, I would just, I got totally obsessed with that album playing loud in my earbuds while I was suffering on the table so it's, it's synonymous with my suffering, you know, but it, it took me somewhere. I think because the songs were long developing and really pulled you in, it was kind of the perfect thing for trying to get my head off the pain that I was into. It's like kind of pull into this vortex of this song and it's going to really be a nice slow development. And, you know, I do kind of get obsessed with different things at different times.
1: I want to talk a little bit more about the, like the visual element of, of the album, because obviously as someone who's worked in a visual medium for so long, um, that's obviously something that's gonna be important when you go back to making music of your own. The covers like both have like a real sort of body horror aesthetic to them. You think horror will always be like sort of the uh, genre you identify
2: with most? Well, I don't know. It's just always it's just always been me, you know. Body dysmorphia, body distortion. I mean, it's just something I've always been fascinated in. I've always loved performance art with your body. You know, that's why doing the videos and stuff, you know, it just kind of really it's interesting that visuals are what started this whole thing in a weird way, because you know, my manager had been trying to get me out to Coachella for a decade. And she kept saying, you know, they'd love to have you out there and would you like to do something? And I was like, nah, nah, nah. And finally in 2019, I agreed to go there with her. And uh, it was the screens, the the video screens that won me over. There'd been a great technology jump in the 10 years. Before that, since, you know, last time I'd been to a concert where, like, these big high-def screens were pretty amazing. And uh, that's what got me in. That's when I said, yeah, I'll do a show because I got – I said, I could put some crazy fucking shit up there on those screens. And I loved the idea of making uh, a musical show but that had some kind of intense visual side to it also. Or, you know, stupid or intense or ridiculous or, or, as you said, disturbing. That was – my hope is that some of it would be at least uh, disturbing up there. And I did have the pleasure at Coachella during the show of like watching people in the front just kind of, <laughs> they were just their kind of mouths open, just kind of looking. Yeah. So I enjoyed that a lot. That was like my performance art was appearing in that show and having some crazy visuals that were really outside of the usual Coachella fair which you know with major acts tends to get pretty slick you know but we were total low budget you know we were finding like really creative artists and doing like super super low budget stuff and and that's where my aesthetic is the visual was like an important part of the project because it started with that
1: tell me a little bit about like uh the preparation for that coach obviously it was very discussed and uh i've seen i've seen a lot of of videos of it and like i I mean it's it looks like a real accomplishment, um, you know. Especially considering what you said that it was it was pretty low budget. How long did it take you to to get that together, and like what went into it?
2: We really did a couple of months worth of prep to the first time, and I know we were really behind, and suddenly it all canceled. And it's like, oh shit! You know, part of us was like, were you know, were we gonna make it in time?" But we would have made it one way or another. But then suddenly, the disappointment of having all that energy canceled was intense. And that was one of the reasons, you know, when I holed up in quarantine, that, you know, big mess happened. I was, you know, pretty depressed. Uh, three months of work and then all for something that just, boom, disappears. So then when Coachella was coming around the second time, we didn't get called at first, we said, all right, so they're going in another direction. It's like they're already doing co- totally different headliners. So we thought maybe it wasn't. And suddenly, they call again and say, no, no, we're on, we're on. And I go, wow, we're just as behind now <laughs> as we were two years ago when we were behind. And uh, so once again, it was like calling everybody up and trying to get these uh, you know, visual artists and animators and everybody to jump in and finish their stuff. You know, it was a lot of work just because it's just like making a low-budget movie. It's a lot of work. You know, you, you have to really call in favors and you have to work on a shoestring and you have to be very inventive and find ways around problems. And so any filmmaker that's made like an ambitious, low budget movie knows it's way harder than doing a movie where you've got plenty of money and, you know, and you can get whatever you want. And it was like that for us to putting Coachella together. It was really on a shoestring in the same way that these amazing remixers and artists got involved with the recording. I was really uh, happy that so many great visual artists, you know, interesting people that I really liked their work, were able to jump in and help for like almost nothing just, just to do it.
1: You've obviously worked on some somewhat lower budget films and also some huge blockbusters. Do you find that like the low budget can sort of drive like a whole different type of creativity at times?
2: It definitely does. I mean, my daughter is a low budget filmmaker and she just finished her first feature. I'm really proud of her. And like I hearing about all the inventive things, you know, trying to invent how to do this shot or get that done where there's no time and there's no budget. I mean, I think that's part of what makes a lot of filmmakers really interesting filmmakers. They started out that way. God knows, uh, Sam Raimi, I mean, the stories that he had from Evil Dead, you know, of like just constructing these crazy things, the Sam cam, like a, a big, huge cross that they literally tie Bruce Campbell on with a camera attached to it on wheels. And they're rolling it through the forest and spinning him around with the camera spinning with them. I love stuff like that. And, uh, you know, I'm, you probably know by the artwork that I created for big mess with Sarah Sitkin that, you know, I'm a big fan of David Cronenberg. And, uh, you know, David Cronenberg started out seat of his pants, you know, just doing all this radical imagery and crazy stuff before he started getting budgets, but it does inform what you can do. And I think not everybody, but a lot of artists really do some of their best stuff on less money. Do you think there's
1: uh more solo material coming? I mean, obviously I, we haven't even discussed like your classical pieces or your, your concertos that you've been doing and. All that, but uh, you think there's more rock music coming?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think inevitably, now that I've opened that door, there's already one or two things I've started toying with in my head. Because, you know, I always say, well, maybe I will, maybe I won't. Then late at night, I'm kind of hearing a thing in my head, and I go, fuck, all right, well, I guess I will be. But I definitely want to kind of stretch out more. You know, I mean, really, that's the goal with everything. That was the goal with Big Mess, was to get out of my comfort zone, recording-wise, how I record, how I write writing more personal as opposed to third person, you know, which was most of what I did with Oingo Boingo with the classical commissions where now I've just, will be starting my seventh commission in seven years, you know, and I'm trying to, I literally given up doing a film each year so I can do this orchestral work is also on the other side of my psyche, pushing myself out of my comfort zone. You know, after doing 110 films, I have to keep myself alive creatively And so like these classical things are so hard for me because I have no training and I don't really know what the fuck I'm doing, but I embrace it and I try to learn while I'm doing it. And it's just hugely, hugely challenging and uh, exhausting, too. And, um, you know, Big Mess in its own way was like a big challenge for me. Now I want to push myself further. And so it's just all about trying to push and push and push myself, you know, outside of my zone. Cause I, I mean, I realize I'm at the point where I could just be a film composer and earn a good living. And, you know, a lot of people respect me for it and, and just be, that's it, you know, just cruise through until I'm done. But, uh, I'm not ready for that. I need to like bang down doors still. Cause that's always been my highest interest. It's like looking for doors where I have no business being and trying to smash them down, or rather breaking into a party that I'm not invited to. That's another way of looking at it. You know, I'm 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 interested in getting in that place that nobody from that place wants me there. That makes me want to be there.
0: That was Danny Elfman talking to the faders, Raphael Helfand. Elfman's new album, *Beggar Messier, is out today, August 12, via Epitaph. The Fader interview is engineered by Tony Giambroni. The executive producer is Alex Robert Ross, and the associate producer is Raphael Helfand. We'd like to thank Lauten Audio for providing our microphones. You can find them online at lautenaudio.com. And we'd like to thank James Ivey, for providing our intro music. If you've enjoyed today's episode, we'd appreciate if you left a five-star rating and review. If you like listening to The Fader, good news. We're now on the new live radio app, Amp. You can download it from the App Store now. And keep an eye on thefader.com for essential music news, interviews, and essays. We'll be back next week with another episode of The Fader Interview. Goodbye until then.